when Microraptor was described in 2003, people thought that there was a single origin of dinosaurian flight that led to both Microraptor and birds. Because in, I forget what year it was, like 1905 or something, this guy named Beebe was just pontificating about how flight may have evolved in birds. And he hypothesized that flight evolved through a four-winged gliding phase. And he drew this animal, it's all made up, but he drew this animal that he called Proavis. And it was, and you can find the illustrations of it. It's this little thing with wings on its arms and wings on its legs. So when Microraptor was described by Xu Xing, people were like, wow, he was right. And so this was thought that like flight in birds first went through a four-wing gliding phase and then eventually evolves to power flight with a single set of wings. But a single origin produces both these modes of flight, right? But now, once you realize that flight may have evolved more than once with the discovery of Scansoriopterygids being volant, and then you look at the phylogenetic position of Microraptor, it seems that Microraptor may also be an independent origin of flight. We know that dinosaurs evolved wing-like structures on their forelimbs for some other purpose, and that these structures were exacted for flight. Greetings, future fossils. Welcome to episode 216 of the podcast that explores our place in time. I'm your host, Michael Garfield, and this week I thought I would be bringing you a conversation with David J. Brown and Sarah Huntley about their work to catalog the entities of DMT space for an upcoming field guide published by Inner Traditions, but elves got into the recording equipment apparently so here is a totally orthogonal and far more conventional slice into natural history an unrepentantly geeky conversation with the delightful and brilliant jingmai o'connor associate curator of fossil reptiles at the field museum in chicago Jingmai is an extraordinary human being and a complete badass, and I am very grateful to have captured this candid conversation with her. Something like the modern equivalent of a bird landing in early Cretaceous lakeside silt and preserving a perfect fossil lung. Anybody who knows me knows I love fossil birds. And Dr. O'Connor is the priestess of fossil birds and wrote a fantastic children's book, When Dinosaurs Conquered the Skies, The Incredible Story of Bird Evolution, illustrated by Maria Brzezowska, which is so beautiful and incredibly rich with information and just as well suited to adults who want to understand the gritty backstory of this very distinctive group of animals that I think most of us take for granted and do not realize how exceptionally strange they are. But first, I want to give my deep and enduring thanks to everyone who has been supporting me on Patreon and Substack, especially new supporters, Cam, Cecilia Sang, Gregory Butera, Siroba, John Oliver, Sebastian Machuka, Jacek Gwiska, Breaking Math Podcast, Moses Silberger, Tim Ronco, and everyone who has pre-ordered my new album, The Age of Reunion, 
which includes a song about dinosaurs for what that's worth and which I'm dropping one track every Wednesday on Bandcamp and all streaming services now through April 24th, but is also already available in its entirety with a totally surreal and psychedelic companion feature-length music video to my Substack and Patreon supporters. At some point, I decided I would do the world more good Stepping out of the incredibly crowded and hyper-competitive field of paleontology and into the incredibly crowded and hyper-competitive field of podcasting and singer-songwriting, well, whatever. Here we are. My children, thank you for your support. If you want to buy them food, go pre-order the album at michaelgarfield.bandcamp.com or become a subscriber at patreon.com slash michaelgarfield michaelgarfield.substack.com or just sign up for free updates and I will have much much more to share with you soon because I'm working on some extremely intense collaborations in the domain of wisdom and technology anyway Jingmai O'Connor she is amazing I'm really glad that we could have a conversation not just about the content of her work but also about the structure of the field, the life of an academic, her own curious upbringing and unique position on things. And I'm really, really glad I get to share it with you. Enjoy and go buy that book for a kid you know, someone else's or your own inner child. When Dinosaurs Conquered the Skies is seriously one of the most accessible wellsprings from which you can sip wonder and awe at deep time. I will link to the book in the show notes. Thank you and enjoy. I need to take my earrings off because they're going to bang into my... Oh, yeah. I want to start with an apology because if I were doing this in my old gig at SFI, I would have spent a week reading all of your papers. And don't worry about it. Instead, I spent, I don't know, a week's worth of evenings reading your book to my four-year-old. I think my book, I kind of joke. I was like, if little kids read my book, they basically know everything that I know, except for the boring anatomical details. But I really condensed everything I know into that book. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't be asking you about the granular stuff here. But I just don't think that most people would understand, or I just don't think it would be relevant to most people. How many people know what like even a deltopictoral crest is? It's like, that's the kind of things that I just don't think is there's any point in going into with, does that make sense? Sure. Although I'd say if anyone could get people excited about it, it would be you or at least us <laughs> together. We can jazz people up about deltopectoral crests. Not that's why I'm here today. Yeah, <laughs> if you wanted to, but I, yeah, I think there's a lot more exciting stuff that we could talk about. The, especially because like, even with my own research, I'm, of course, anatomy is like the fundamental building block of paleontology, of vertebrate paleontology. But I, I argue that the soft tissues that we get in fossils tell us so much more than the skeletons do. Yeah, and so we can talk about soft tissue anatomy. <laughs> I do want to talk about soft tissue anatomy because 
I think this entire conversation is going to be framed by the fact that my paleontological fieldwork basically stopped almost 20 years ago. And so there's been this enormous explosion of really good specimens discovered in that time. And reading your book was a shock to me. I was like, are you kidding me? Like that we know this. Where have Which, I what been? What in particular? Yeah. What was so shocking to you? Oh my God. I, also, I, I was like, is this the podcast? Has it started? Or just like- I guess. I like to ease into it. Okay. But yeah. No, there was, I don't even remember now. Cause like I said, this was, oh, like the details, like I, and I'll save this for later, but the bit about the Chalaze is that how I'm saying it? The well, uh, I always said the Kaliza, but I also have never looked it up, and I've definitely heard it pronounced a myriad of ways. So maybe we should look this up and figure out how to actually pronounce that. Okay, but yeah, just membranes in the egg and stuff that you can. So that's not actually fossilized. We infer its absence or presence based on other things, like for example, nest structure. So, for example. If the eggs are in a buried nest or the eggs are at least partially embedded in the ground, like, for example, a troodontid nest or an enantiornithine nest, then we infer the eggs are not being moved. And if the eggs are not being moved, we infer the absence of a Kaliza. But so like in order to move your eggs, you have to have this feature. So we just we are that is something that's whether or not a Kaliza was one of the major factors in the survival of crowned birds and the end Cretaceous mass extinction is just a hypothesis because we have no idea how most of these Cretaceous birds were nesting. We know enantiornithines, even in the late Cretaceous, at least some of them had immobile nests, but whether or not what other nest structures were like, we don't know. Fossil eggs are pretty rare. So do we just not have fossil ground nests for other groups of birds because they were less common than the enantornithines, which are the dominant group of terrestrial birds? Or is it because they had aerial nests? And aerial nests, of course, have an extremely low preservation potential. An aerial nest implies that the egg can be moved and it would imply the presence of a Kaliza. So yeah, I'm not saying that we'll never find a fossilized Kaliza because I think there's a lot of things right now that we've been finding in the past decade that we never thought we'd find. So I'm not ruling it out, but at the moment we don't have it. We do have fossilized membrane testacea or that, you know, when you boil an egg and there's like the eggshell and then that skin that has been fossilized. So okay, so there's a lot there's a lot in there, and we we jumped off the diving board rather than walking down the stairs into the pool. Because again, I don't know how many of my listeners are actually even like paleontologically minded. You're being dragged through this with me, everyone. But okay, so I want to get to the eggs. I want to get to soft tissues, but I want to start with you, just as a way of you introducing yourself. And I'd love for you to take this opportunity to tell your origin story in a way that it's like refreshingly different for you. Because I feel like you uh, have been interviewed many times. Yeah. And you're a distinctive person. But That's one way of putting it. That's very <laughs> diplomatic of you. <laughs> no, it's I get this whole born from two tribes in LA, living an unusual life thing. Like yeah. I'm I resonate with that. Yeah, I'm definitely not like most other paleontologists. I think that's going to be changing. I think I think I'm probably like 
on the front of this like new generation of paleontologists that are much more diverse and not this cookie cutter, dressed to go hiking, worship Paul Serino type. And so yeah, I'm excited about the future of paleontology. And I'm not saying that there isn't a place for the traditional archetype paleontologists. And so recently I got somebody was some troll was like on my Instagram saying all this nasty stuff because I posted when you picture paleontologists, you picture like Indiana Jones, even though yes, Indiana Jones was an anthropologist or an archaeologist, but yes, he's based on Roy Chapman Andrews, who was a paleontologist, whatever. So you picture that guy, white guy, probably out digging for dinosaurs. And all I said was that this is a very narrow picture of our field and that there are many other types of people who also contribute to paleontology. And I said this because I had just given a tour to this kid who had two double lung transplants and wanted to be a paleontologist. And we were trying to make the point that you could be a paleontologist without doing field work. That was the point I was trying to make. And so I was just like, that's a narrow view. You can discover new species in a collection, or you can make huge contributions behind a microscope. Just whatever. It's what I said. And then some troll jumps on me and it's like, you hate men. And you're like a reverse racist. And you talk about adversity, but then you better. And I was just like, dude, I didn't respond because I have learned my lesson about engaging with trolls, even though I think they deserve to be told to beep off. That's not allowed. So anyways, yeah, so I didn't respond. Podcast until my daughter shows up. Oh, wait, so I can say like bad words? Is that what oh, you can say whatever the fuck you want until okay. my daughter's in the room. And even then I'm probably still going to. I was just, yeah. Anyways, so yeah, I think yeah. that you should like when people are shitty, you should, you know, why not tell them that they're being shitty? But anyways, but actually what was cool is because I didn't respond. I was good. I bit my tongue. I was like, whatever. But this famous comic book artist, Louis LaRosa, who actually does really amazing dinosaur illustrations, he jumps in and it's just like <laughs> starts battling this guy. And I was just like, oh my God, I'm so cool. <laughs> the end. <laughs> I don't even know why we're talking. Oh yeah. We're talking about uh, different types of paleontologists. Being yeah. distinctive. Yes. Yeah. It's, I'm, I've always just been like, I'm me and that's the only person I can be. And I can't be somebody else, even if I tried, you know, even if it means one day I'll get fired. I don't know. But yeah, that's just who I am. And yeah, so it's not like I'm trying to be distinctive. I just, I'm just being myself. But yeah, I I think I'm just a little bit different from paleontologists, other paleontologists, because I just had a different, I got into the game differently. I always say I'm like, I'm late to the party because I didn't have an interest in paleontology until I was in college, whereas like everyone else is their origin story is all is the same origin story, right? I saw Jurassic Park, or I played with dinosaurs when I was three years old, and you gotta um, you've got to admire their commitment, and, like their like constancy. I when I was a kid, I wanted to be this, I wanted to be that. I like went through all so many different things, and but these guys very single minded, very focused, and and I respect that, and I also recognize that they've had an extra fifteen years at least to memorize all the dinosaur names and. <laughs> No lie. So they got a head start for sure. But what are you going to do? My journey so, is my own. So how did you get into it then? Or yeah, let's go back. Yeah. Let's, before that, before that, the what was child? I read somewhere that you played violin in a folk band. Yeah, I did. <laughs> so, well, like my mom being like a Chinese mom, make sure all her kids play an instrument, right? That's just what Asian moms do. And I think it's actually really good because learning to read music is a language. 
So even though I'm not fluent in any other language, I can read music. I'm not fluent in it either, though. But yeah, so I started violin, which I think is, I don't think they should allow little kids to play violin. It's just, it's torture for the parents. Not that I got noticeably better or appreciably better later on in life. I was, oh, I'm still a terrible violinist. I haven't touched a violin in 10 years, and it's probably for the better. But yeah, I was forced to play the violin. I wanted to play saxophone. My dad told me that wasn't for girls, so... Oh, played violin instead. Yeah. Oh. My sister and, plays the uh, saxophone. But my wife teaches violin to kids, and my four year old is like super into it. She's, she's oh, like, awesome. yeah, yeah. Anyway, go on, go on. Yeah, I played violin, and but I really hated lessons. I wasn't good. And so at a certain point, I think when I was a junior in college, my mom said, All right, if you hate your violin lessons so much, you can quit if you join our folk band. So it's my parents' folk band. Like my mom, my dad plays drums. My mom plays recorder. They both sing. Obviously my mom doesn't do the same, than both at the same time. But yeah, and they had another violinist and the other violinist would just get nervous when they performed. So they wanted another violinist to like make it so she wouldn't be as nervous because there's not so much focus on a single violin like screeching over the rest of the instruments. Yeah, that's how I got into it. And honestly, I really enjoyed it. And the last time I did pick up my violin, it was not to play... Vivaldi or whatever like stuff that I was trained in, but it was to play folk music. And yeah, we played Korbushka, which is like the Tetris theme song. It's a yeah. Russian folk song about a hooker, I'm pretty sure. And uh, yeah, and we played folk songs from all over the world, like Mexican folk songs, Cuban folk songs, Japanese folk songs. Yeah, all sorts of stuff. And it was really fun. It was a, I enjoyed the experience. Wait, did you just tell me that the Tetris theme song was about a hooker? Yeah, I think it's about a guy being like, oh, hey, prostitute or woman. Anyways, I want to have sex with you. And she's, and then the song progresses that he's just like trying to give her more and more things until she finally, until he, he gives her everything he has. And then she's like, all right, let's go in the bushes. I think that's what it's about. But now I'm like, oh, shit, I should, let me fact check myself. There's a, what is Korobushka about? Because I'm sitting here being like, Tetris. Yeah. yeah. Yep. That's Let right. me give you everything. So it's about a, it's a peddler and a girl haggling over the price of her. I don't know if it's her maiden head or just a spin, but anyways. <laughs> and with every line, we accelerate. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> focus dinosaurs. Folk music. Yeah. No. This, see, this is this is what I actually wanted was just to talk to a person. The untold story. <laughs> yeah. You're going to be like, you may never release this. The, that was your. That was my junior and senior year in high school. I think it, I think it was only those two years. And then I went off to college and I stopped being in the folk band. Why? Okay. So what did you go off to college thinking you were going to do? But this folk band still uh, exists and my parents still have folk practice with them once a week and they still perform once a month. And they've gotten a lot better, I have to say. Every time how I go many, home and I hear them, I'm like, band? wow. What? How big is how the many, band? So they, oh, a violinist, a guitar, a accordion, a bass guitar, clarinet, the, the violin. Did I say the violin already? Yeah. And the drums and the recorders. So seven or eight people. Quite a few. And the members have changed. They're all retired. So sometimes somebody moves away or something happens. But they're still doing it. Did you tour? No, we, like, so my oh. parents met folk dancing, a Chinese immigrant and a second generation Irishman from New York meet in LA in the 80, early 80s in a Bulgarian folk dancing troupe called Koryar, which I don't think exists anymore. But yeah, that's how they met. And so as a little kid, like we would go to like the 
county fair and we'd perform folk music and they'd trot out us little kids dressed up in Bulgarian folk outfits. And that was cute. Yeah. Yeah. That's how they met. And then they did this, they got into this other uh, folk group that still exists and still meets every Friday. And then on fifth Fridays, they have live band performing for the, and yeah. Anyway, okay, your question. What did I, so my mom, my mom was, she, my, she was a stay-at-home mother for uh, most of my childhood, but my dad was an artist and like, we just didn't have a lot of money. So at a certain point it reached, it like, it reached a point where my mom had to get a job. So she decided to go back to school. And originally she was going to do something like practical and uh, become a social worker. And so she studies for the GRE and she's got four kids that are trying to kill each other. And she's dragging us to violin lessons and we don't want to go and piano lessons and all that wasn't the most present father. And uh, yeah, so it was hard. And even, and she's like driving us to violin lessons and she's memorizing GRE words and she, you know, really hardworking woman. She gets like a, a GRE was out of 1600 at the time. I don't know what it is now. She gets like a 1598 or something like that. The doors open. She gets offered scholarships, at least a place like USC, which wants to like beef up its reputation by having smart people. So she get, gets the Dean's Fellowship there. And so she decides, I'm not going to be a social worker because I'll probably be miserable if I do that. And I'm going to do what I've always loved. I'm going to, and I'm going to do geology. So she does a PhD in geology in three and a half years. And, and she could have done it faster, but her advisor was like, I'm not going to let you get out of here in three years. <laughs> it's too fast. And like, I was like 10 years old when she started. And so she would take us to the lab with her because we can't afford a babysitter. And she's parking at meters and she sends us kids to wipe off the chalk that the meter maids are putting on the, on the tires. So like she can park in the meter more than two hours or whatever. And she puts us in the lab and gives us like cups of liquid nitrogen or like glass sticks and little blow torches. And was like, knock yourselves out. I accidentally burned my little sister once. That put the end to the torches anyways. But we still got to play with liquid nitrogen. And we didn't have a computer at home. And we didn't have the internet. We were like I said, I've said this many times, we we're poor. So, But then we had access to these computer labs at USC. And so me and my brother and sister were downloading all this Dragon Ball Z stuff and printing things. And we actually accidentally downloaded a virus to one of the computers and cost some grad student all their data, which I feel bad about. As somebody who has since done a PhD, I'm like, man, my mom and her little pack of kids were probably so annoying but yeah for us it was fun <laughs> it was an interesting experience and and that's how I got into geology and yeah I actually entered college having already taken geology 101 at a community college when because that's what my mom did when she graduated she got a job teaching geology at Long Beach Community College and yeah, she made me take her summer course because again, we needed the money and if not enough people signed up, then it wouldn't happen. So she, I had to take this class. I took a couple of her classes. So I was able to skip all the intro geology classes and I was the only declared geology major my freshman year, even though technically I entered as a sophomore. And yeah, so I, I was doing geology that I was committed to that, but I didn't know what aspect of geology really, no aspect of geology had really sparked my passion yet. I was mostly doing it to please my mom. Actually, like the story of my life, if you want to talk about everything I've ever done, it's to have my mom pat me on my head and tell me I've done a good job. And so anyways, I was like, okay, I'm going to do volcanology. That sounds cool. Volcanoes are cool. Sure. Why not? And then I took a class by Donald Prothero, who's a well-known paleontologist, written a ton of books and, and like real books, not kids' books like mine. <laughs> and he teaches a class called Historical Geology really fascinating class and it takes you from the origin of the universe all the way up to the origin of planet earth and then up from there to modern day 
on planet Earth, right? And of course, that in- involves the evolution, the appearance of life and how it, life has changed in the 3.8 billion years that life's been on our planet. And I just totally got hooked by thinking about evolution and being told this is how it works. But then you try to actually run a simulation in your mind of, okay, this animal like lays has a bunch of babies and one of them's like a freak baby with a long tail, but that long tail is like advantageous. So it like survives better and has more babies than the ones without a long tail. And some of its babies also have freak long tails and they survive better. And you like try to like, like compute this in your mind. And it's just so big that you can't, right? You're, so it blows the mind, like literally your mind. And I don't know. I like, yeah, I just, I fell in love with it. And because I was already a geologist, if you're going to study evolution through that lens, it's paleontology. And here I am. (laughs) Why birds? So that is, so when I made the choice to be a paleontologist, I tell Don Prothero, I'm like, hey, I want to be a paleontologist like you. And he's like, that's not a good idea. And he tells me all the reasons not really. He's like, don't do it. And he tells me all the reasons why I shouldn't do it. And you can ask any student who's ever approached me and they will tell you that I've given them the same lecture and with my own personal additions. I want to hear that. I want to hear that. We'll circle back to that. Don't like, yeah, don't let, don't forget. Also, because that's why not to be a paleontologist. But yeah, go ahead. Why not to be a paleontologist? Very important. Yeah. So he tells me, and I'm like, I don't care. I'm going to do it anyways. And so he, and then his last parting words were, at least don't do paleoanthropology. And I was like, yeah, no problem. I don't like people. Yeah. So then I decided to do paleontology, and but I'm new to it and I'm interested in everything. So I always say I'm an equal opportunity extinct animal enthusiast. I love it all. Except for graptolites. I was like, yeah, I've told that joke like a million times, but it's true. Anyway, so I got like my trilobite and ammonite tattoos were my first fossil tattoos. And anyway, so I like it all. So I applied to a really diverse array of graduate school programs. Like I evolved, I applied to work on coprolites, be a coprolite specialist with Karen Chin, like the one coprolite specialist. The one, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the one. And I applied to work with Bill Osich on echinoderms. Yeah, I think he's retired now, but he's like really famous echinoderm worker. Who doesn't like echinoderms? They're cool. Crinoids. And then I applied to work with Ryosuke Motani on marine reptiles, which actually are my favorites. Like I also have a plesiosaur tattoo on my ankle. I love marine reptiles. And I got accepted to that program, but I also was really intimidated by his lab. I was like, I'm not good enough at math to be in this lab. So I turned that one down. And then I got accepted to USC where I could either work on mammals with Wang Xiaoming, who's the fossil mammal curator at the LA Naturist Museum, or work on birds with Luis Chiappe. And so at this point, I had made the impractical decision to be a paleontologist. So I decided to make the practical decision in what I studied, because at this time, all these birds are coming out of China, right? Like suddenly the diversity of Mesozoic birds is just exploding. So I knew that this was an area where I could actually make a significant contribution. You can just rehash what are T-Rex's arms for or T-Rex bite for. People are going to be rehashing that forever, but this is something new. This is something where you can really contribute. And even though I had no interest in birds, like really none. Like I, in fact, I, I actively disliked <laughs> birds at the time because I had been doing field work in Inner Mongolia with Wang Xiaoming and I got chased by this rooster and it was a traumatizing experience. I was like, I don't like birds. 
But yeah, I was like, I'm going to study them anyways. <laughs> I like them now for the record. But I also think that whatever group of organisms I chose to work on, I would fall in love with and become obsessed with and start buying all these jewelry and whatever and like just getting everything that's bird and everything. Regardless, even if it was craftolites, perhaps, though it would have limited the amount of things available to buy. But, but yeah, so that's why I chose birds. But yeah, now do you want to hear why you should not be a paleontologist? Well, hold on, because... I just want to comment for a moment before you go there on why your paleontology succeeded and my paleontology failed as far as a career strategy. Because I remember I, I was one of those kids. I was like from days, like from the start, dinosaurs all the way through that admirable monomaniacal thing. And I feel like now that was all just a prequel to what I'm actually supposed to be doing in the world is just like living this incandescent, disastrous, open question of come with me on an inquiry into the investigation of meaning that pops open at somebody at 22 when they think they know what they're going to do for their whole life. And then they are diverted from that path. And it's, but in my case, like it's, it's so funny to hear you talk about this stuff because I painted myself into a corner, right? Okay, not just I love dinosaurs, but I was with Bob Bakker at Como Bluff starting at age 12 and like getting to go out there a little bit every summer and work with him in that respect. When that dig team fell apart, it felt like the Mario, the floor panel. I was like, I've just been on this, the decaying floor panel side scroller thing ever since. And in a weird way, it's like, it's beautiful. It's like the difference between, this is Ada. Say hello. Hi, Ada. Hello. <laughs> Your hair looks so cute. Did you just have it in you know, pigtails? <laughs> yeah. She added up like puppy dog. Oh, nice. I call those like party buns. Party buns. <laughs> you want to sit so I heard you've been checking out my book. Did you like it? You don't have to say you liked it if you didn't. I appreciate honesty. I am honest. To a fault. <laughs> no, she does like it. And she was very excited to meet you. But some nights she wants something else. That's the full spectrum. Fair enough. I don't read. Like when people are like, did you walk to prehistoric planet? I'm like, no. I'm dinosaurs all day. I'm not going to go home and watch <laughs> dinosaurs at night. Like, no, I'm going to watch, you know, I don't know, Marie Antoinette get her head cut off or something. I'm a period drama kind of person. But, oh, right on, right on. Yeah. Shouldn't I be getting paid for this right now? Shouldn't I be getting paid to... to when people... Yeah. When people ask me, like, if I watched it, I'm like, why would I? It's not for scientists. It's not scientifically accurate. If anything, it would just be like having your fingernails pulled out, watching just them make up these things about dinosaurs and parade it as if it was factual. Oh, it drives me crazy. Anyways, but I mean, every time one of these seasons come tried. out, I get peppered with people being like, oh, what you think? What you think? And I'm like, eh. <laughs> Anyways, they did not try. They did not try. They could have led in everything with hypothetically based on comparison with birds, living dinosaurs, maybe some dinosaurs also had complex mating behaviors. They don't say that. They're like, oh, look at this dinosaur doing its mating dance. This is what it did. That's totally misleading. It's all lies. It's garbage. Sorry. My <laughs> favorite part of that show. Yeah. Oh, thank you. My favorite part of that show is the making of where they show their work a little bit. They're like, this is why we like cooked it up. But at any rate, yes. So there's something like I'm seeing here. I feel like I went into this 
with the Western romantic ideal of marriage. And I had this dream of how it was going to be. And then when I realized that I wasn't going to get to work with those people and in that place, it got complicated. And I just love, I love hearing you be like, I don't know. I, I was into geology and I was like, sure. I'll, Cause I, I remember I put out a PhD app to university of Texas at one point. And the guy there was like, if you like dinosaurs, don't come here because the guy running this place, he's going to make you work on turtles or something. And I was like, I don't know. That sounds pretty cool. I like turtles. I've had pet turtles since I was a kid, but it, but it was like it, my academic thing was like mostly people being like, uh, you don't get to choose they're going to choose for you and me being like, ah, fuck that. And then running off. And Bobby, then- that's, I had no choice in my dissertation. I like Luis was like, if you work with me, this is your thesis. And that's very different from a lot of programs here. It's do what you want, shop around, do rotations in lots of people's different in different people's labs, learn different things, see what you like. And then choose something. And I think that's, it's really awesome what the University of Chicago has. But the University of Chicago has the money to make this happen because they're like the students in our evolutionary biology program come in fully funded. So it's not like one advisor needs to come up with the money. But in the case of with me, it's like my advisor had to come up with half the money for my PhD, which means he had to have the money, which means the money had to come from a project, a specific NSF grant that gave him money to do a specific set of research. And and that's why there was limited choice. And yeah, so it, it depends on the program for sure. But it, yeah, did you only apply to a single program and then like- No, I applied to T and, okay, I was going to apply, I wrote applications to UT Berkeley in Chicago and somewhere I still have my letter to Chicago. Like I never even sent the stuff. This, and again, like I haven't spoken to Bob Bacher in almost 20 years, but- You haven't had him on your podcast? I can't get him on my podcast. I can't get a hold of him. <laughs> I think not only is he notoriously- diff- I've, I, The last time I was at the SVP conference was 2018 because it happened to be in Albuquerque when we moved to New Mexico. And I ran into the guy that was working with- I forget the guy's name. I ran into the guy that was working with Bob on Dimetrodons in Texas. And he was like- Oh yeah, Bob's always hitting me up on my at 3 a.m. texting me all this weird shit, and I was like, okay, great. So he's not as hard to get a hold of as it seems. I think he's actually just disappointed that I didn't become a paleontologist, and he just doesn't want to talk to me anymore. I think that's what happened, but I'm not sure. It's a long time to hold a grudge. Yeah, yeah, but like the older I get, the more convinced I am that. The more you're like, oh, I'm starting to hold long grudges too. I get it. Yeah, I can do this. It becomes a part of your anatomy. Yeah. I think the difference between us is that because I got into paleo so late, like I had a very, I didn't have a set idea of what it was or what it meant to be a paleontologist. Whereas you had this, a more fixed idea of what you wanted and what you expected. And so that means you had less flexibility and so i was just like i don't know like it's all good let's see and i didn't have time to like really imagine what it was going to be and then be disappointed that it wasn't that And i guess i think one thing you'll notice everybody you'll see is you get disappointed in just what science is you're like oh 
these people don't know what they're doing. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Don't get but, me started. Uh, yeah. yeah. But uh, okay. So love the one you're with. It seems like that's worked. Is that, that was the whole point of that. But I would love to hear why you think. Or you, it not be a paleontologist? Yeah, the talk. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The talk. Here's the talk. <laughs> well, essentially it's like, there's a lot of people, a lot of people are like, oh, paleontology is interesting. And there are a lot of people who want to be paleontologists. And so paleontology for educational institutes is cash cow. You get all these students coming in and you can train them to be paleontologists. But for every 100 students that gets trained to do paleontology, there is one job. So it is extremely competitive. So if you're not willing to sacrifice your life for paleontology, don't do it. Now, of course, that is an extreme. If you want to be a curator at the AMNH or the Field Museum, that's, that is what requires the ultimate sacrifice. Sure, if you want to be a small-time paleontologist in some national park or a small university, it definitely requires less out of you. I think you can have hobbies and things like that. But I think it's just one thing is to let people know is that it requires enormous amount of dedication and that there are very few jobs and it is very competitive. And because it is so competitive, this leads to another problem is that it is an especially nasty area of academia. Like all of academia is nasty. I describe academia as a pit of vipers, you know, because it's so competitive. There's so little money. So the amount of money that NSF makes available for grants, it does not grow. If anything, it shrinks despite inflation and despite increased applicant pools. So you have more and more people applying for this funding that is not growing. And if anything is getting smaller, so grants are incredibly are incredibly competitive and very difficult to come by. And my job description is you will lead a externally funded research program. So you're not, you're under so much pressure to get money to do your research. And then the museum takes overhead, which is 59% in MIT in some places, it's 100%, which means that you're spending all your time applying for grants. And then when you get them, your institution takes most of the money. So, and then, yeah, so like academia is a scam because you're, you're, you get paid nothing because they know you'll work for nothing and the jobs are so competitive. So they're like, if you won't take it, someone else will, because there's 99 other paleontologists lining up behind you wanting your job. Right. So they can pay you whatever they want. And then you have to spend all your money, time trying to get grants that you're going to get rejected for. If you're good at getting grants, you get one in five. And do you know how much time it takes to put together one of these proposals? And then when you submit papers, you have to pay for your paper to be published. So you're paying for it to get published, but you are also for free doing the work as a reviewer to review other people's papers as an editorial board member to handle manuscripts, all that's so like the, these journals are making money while you give them money to make, it's just, ah, just sorry, I'm getting, but do you understand how much of a scam academia is period? But then anyway, so academia is a scam and it's highly competitive and it's a nasty place, but for some reason, paleontology is the worst. And if you look online, one of the most toxic places on Twitter like outside of like QAnon hypotheses or whatever is paleontology Twitter. 
it is so nasty and people are so mean to each other and backstab each other and steal each other's ideas and steal each other's research and purposely reject each other's papers just to get ahead and all sorts of nasty backstabbing things and that you really have to have a very thick skin to be in this field and so this is something my advisor did not tell me this is something i add from my own personal experiences and yes i think the field of birds and the field of dinosaurs in general is a little bit worse than other fields. Definitely, I'll tell these stories to like paleobotanists and they're just like, you guys are crazy. <laughs> yeah, I get that. But most people like when they dinosaur paleontologists make up a majority of paleontologists. And uh, yeah, which is not, it doesn't necessarily make sense. But anyways, yeah, the first, like when I first got into paleo, I'm not going to name who this person was, but I kept submitting papers and they're like, your first papers are your little babies. You put your heart and soul into your first papers and you're doing your best. And, and then you send it out there for review. And you're hoping that you're going to get constructive criticism, right? And you're, if you did something glaringly wrong, the person will point it out and it's going to feel like a gut punch, but you did something wrong. So fair enough. This is what the review process is for. That's not what happens when your paper comes back. It's just some asshole just saying all sorts of mean things about your paper that aren't even true because they are doing it with a specific purpose of crushing you while you are young and can be crushed and trying to prevent you from making the step to actually go from student to professional. And we see this in nature. There's animals that go out there and kill other baby animals because like of their own species, because they're just trying to prevent competition. So this is something that is, ins I don't know if it's instinctive, whatever. It's, it is a known like tactic, right? But yeah, and when this person did this to me repeatedly, it really hurt. And, uh, and I'll never forgive them, but never. Uh, <laughs> like holding that grudge 20 years strong, Bob Bakker, yep. I see you. It wasn't him, not just kidding. But uh, no. anyways, uh, but uh, like, it was really hurtful. And I cried. Like when I got my papers back from review and you get these nasty comments that are not even factual, I cried. And I remember sitting in my office crying and my advisor, he's Luis and he's this macho guy and he doesn't cry. So he's, what do I do? And he's like patting me awkwardly. Oh, it's okay. I don't want to do this. People are mean. But uh, yeah, I toughened up. And, but not everyone can do that. And not everybody wants to live a life where you're constantly fighting for everything. Some people are like, you know what, academia, this is a miserable life. I don't want to do this. That's not me. I'm a fighter. So I'm like, oh yeah, you want to fight? Let's fight. And so I will I'll push back and I, I have what it takes to play this game. But it's not, it's, and I'm, I refuse to ever sink to the level of the way other people play it. I won't do that. I'm like, but... At the same time, you have to recognize that most people, a lot of people out there play dirty and you're going to have to always be dealing with this nastiness in your life. And so academia really is not for everyone. And I think that's really important for people to know also before they get in and they spend years of their life in a degree that they decide then that they're never going to use or that, they, that this is not the life for them. So that's the gist of my talk. There are some like nuances to it i'm sure that i'm like forgetting and like my passionate outrage against some of my mean colleagues but uh, yeah that's like the main thing is you have to work super 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 hard and you got to deal with mean people the end <laughs> okay okay there's, there's a choose your own adventure here one one question would be so did the kickboxing come first or did it come as a as an adaptation to an environment of studying what my former mentor called kickboxing sickle clawed creatures. The other one, maybe a more 
the more appropriate one is like, okay, paleontology is also weird in that it has a rather large, I don't know what you would call it, off-grid, but like unaffiliated network of amateur researchers. There are lots of people who consider themselves paleontologists who are not academics also. and Which and is also uniquely paleontology. Do you right. think there's people in their basements calling themselves chemists? I mean, oh, there but are. It's not, yeah. it's not as common. Yeah. Yeah. I live in New Mexico, so like Breaking Bad comes to mind. But yeah, okay. The, yeah. <laughs> so you would c- consider meth kitchen to be a chemistry lab? Well, okay. Anyway, that's I, a bit, yeah. know, This is what I'm getting at, right? Is that like the, this next thing maybe we talk about is, and I actually do want to get to hearing you talk about your Science. field work in China and the actual birds and this stuff. I do. But the maybe the last thing that it just, because I know it's going to be frothy. I'm really curious. I remember rooting for the Disney McDonald's assist on the Field Museum's purchase of Sue, which happened when I was in high school. I think you were probably in high school too, right? That was- Yes. Yeah. yeah. But I also like no interest in dinosaurs. Was this on my radar? No. No. Yeah. (laughs) Well, my dad was working for Disney when this happened. It was weird. It oh, was cool. like, I was, I was close to it, but I was also a, a teenager. And so I was like, capitalism, man. And it's funny because when I had Steve Brusati on the show, who, by the way, is the person that I, like when I stepped out of paleontology, I was like, it's like exactly what you said. There's a hundred people in line for that job. And it was so funny because when I talked to Steve on the show, I realized I was like, oh my God, I stepped out and he took my place in line. Like he, I was like, I'm meeting the, I had this like weird, I had a a, kind of a cosmic mind fuck moment where I was like, this is the guy that took the job. I like, I like, I would have been at, I would have been directly competing with him for. Oh, so you guys applied to University of Chicago at the same time. Is that what you're saying? No, not exactly. But like his interest in like the Tyrannosaur work and all this stuff. Anyway, I was just like, this is, he would have been my, and maybe this is just like something that again, like you this causally does not make sense because you said you went into, you only came to appreciate birds after the fact. But I think about this stuff and I'm like, am a bird in terms of kicking the other birds out of the nest, like the intense sibling rivalry piece, the, the pecking <laughs> orders. There is something yeah. very bird-like about academia in that respect. But, but then there's this other thing, which is that we're at a time when I'm going to zoom way out and say that like when I talked to Steve and Steve was talking about the golden age of paleontology being now, it's the Anthropocene, right? Because we're ripping up the surface of the planet and we're the, we are therefore finding things that are stored in the rocks at an unprecedented pace. And so there is this, there's this relationship between development and the capital finance and discovery and science. And it's all very twisted and weird and, What am I getting at? Oh, that this same process is the process that is not just ripping up the literal earth, but is is eroding the epistemic structures. This is like a big thing we talk about on the show a lot. The information scaling challenge to the institutions of modernity and the way that you may disagree with me on this. And you, if you do, you will disagree with me in an interesting way. And I welcome that. But it strikes me that in the time that I've spent in the halls of ivory towers, that even experts, because of economic reasons, are focused on particular things. They're not incented to, or perhaps they can't even keep up with the pace of research in especially 
busy areas and like discovery is like on fire all over the planet right now. And like, how can anyone even keep up? And so there are, in a way it's you like the bone wars of the 19th century and how people were, they created this taxonomic mess where the same animal had multiple different names attached to it. And you see the same thing. I was just looking at some of my old friends from the Santa Fe Institute published a piece on quantifying evolution and selection with assembly theory. And I was like watching it on Twitter as, I don't think this is just limited to paleontology. Like I was watching people being like, oh, I, I did that work 10 years ago, this kind of thing. And it's, can we, I think we can be forgiven for this disjunction between the pace at which discovery is happening and the pace at which individual learning is possible. If somebody did something 10 years ago and you didn't cite their work, then you know you didn't do your background research properly. And also the reviewers failed because they didn't notice that they didn't cite previous work. And like, yeah, sure, the rate of discovery is enormous, but every PhD or most PhDs who are really good at what they do are focusing on a single point. So it's easy to stay up on the research of your single point because there's not that much going on. Like for me, Mesozoic birds, not that much other Mesozoic bird research going on. There's not that many Mesozoic bird researchers. And the more broad your interests are, the harder it is to stay current. So I would, and I would almost justify why it's okay to be, have such a narrow focus. But that's also the reason that we have conferences. You go to conferences to see what's going on and to stay current. As it's difficult to sit, set aside time in your day to read every scientific paper that comes out. But if you're going to these conferences and just dedicating these few days to just seeing what's going on, to learning, you don't just learn what that topic, what that person is talking about. They're also talking about all the background research that is related to their project. And you see the citations in there. And usually when I'm at a conference in the margins of my abstract book or whatever, are just like lots of citations of, oh, they cited some paper that I didn't know about. And you write it down and, and then you carry your abstract book home and never actually download any of those papers. But <laughs> the intent is there. But yeah, that's also why now we're moving towards a single scientific language. If you want for us to e more easily disseminate science, it all needs to be in the same language. So English is a scientific language. Thank goodness. It's a language. If it was not a language I spoke, I probably would not be able to be a, 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 to be a success, successful scientist because I'm real shite when it comes to languages. But and that was also made it possible for me to live in China for 10 years. Yeah, I, like, I know basic Chinese, but like, I, and I've given even scientific talks in Chinese, but mostly they just laughed at me afterwards because my Chinese was so bad. But, <laughs> but yeah, I was able to be successful also there because again, the scientific language is English. And so everybody, like all the scientists must speak English in order to be successful. So I'm able to communicate with them easily. And yeah, I think there's enormous progress that's being made in little areas that people are focusing on. But if we look at the overall status of humanity, there's no progress. We are reverting to, we have passed our peak and we are now in the fall of Rome and things are really shitty. <laughs> and so for all the scientific progress that you were just extolling or making sound, like it sounds so significant, important, like it's doing us no good. And so at a certain point, we need to step back and be like, if any of this is not helping, then maybe that's not what we should be focusing on right now. Maybe we should be focusing on some simple, basic things to get ourselves in a place where any of this scientific progress will matter because we're still around in a hundred years. And yet, and yet yeah. you got to go hunt grants, right? Like it's... 
Yeah, because if we focused on, if we step back and we we're like, let's look at these basic things, then some of these basic things would be like, let's take care of each other. Let's stop putting tons of money into military. Let's spread that money around and give people basic free healthcare and like decent wages. And let's put money in science and all those. And then my problems would be solved. Okay, so but also paleontology is not exactly it's not exactly the most important like going to save our planet science. So I, I, now that we're in a six mass extinction, I can be like, uh, like yeah. we need to study mass extinction so we can understand them and understand how organisms respond. The only thing is, really, our mass extinction is happening on a time scale that is so much smaller than past mass extinctions. I don't know if an animals if animals are more prone to extinction because of the greater rate of change. Right now things are changing at an extraordinary rate, much faster than they have in past mass extinctions. So I'm not quite sure how relevant that information from the past will be, but this is what I'm going to say in my NSF grants under broader impacts. So that's the thing is every dinosaur documentary that I've ever seen has to do that grant application twist at the end. And it's, and this is important because, and it's, it's duplicitous, but it's like the real thing is the intrinsic curiosity. I feel like it's like, there are people that love being out in the field or they love being in the museum or they love the, the, like being engaged in a, an intellectual dance with the, sublime horror of deep time or they, and I guess I'm asking kind of like multiple, again, multiple questions at once, but it's, I think my, my goal here was to go through the question like of your stance on amateur paleontology and what is it about? Cause it is funny how some of these people are just like adult adolescent dweebs. And I think maybe that's the thing. It's not the amateur piece of it. It's the, the rogue piece of it. I, I don't care. Like amateurs, for sure. Like there is definitely the strong potential for amateurs to contribute to science. But the thing is, like these people who put ideas out on a blog don't know what it actually means to do research and get your paper, your ideas through the scientific process of peer review and how much time it actually takes to write a manuscript, a real manuscript, and format it and create publication quality figures and then have your peers say whether or not this is acceptable research before it find before you cough over up $1,500 and it finally becomes part of the scientific literature. Because the ideas I have that I could not get published because you can't, you do not have enough information to support it. And But with an internet and the blog, you can just say whatever you want. And I just, and that's fine. I don't care. You can say that the Democrats are eating babies or whatever you want on the internet. I don't care. But what people need to recognize is there is a difference between something that has gone through peer review and something that is just somebody's ideas on a blog. Those are not equal. And if people understand that, then that's fine. But a lot of people don't understand this distinction. And, and therein lies the problem, whatever. Anyways. And then the second problem is that a lot of these people are very nasty, even beyond academic standards. Yes. Like in, in academia, like I said, there's a lot of people who are really mean, but there's a whole new level of just nastiness because they're hiding behind their computer screens. They don't have to see each other at conferences. They don't have to play nice because you have to play nice because other these are the people who are going to review your papers and they're going to be mean even if you're not mean to them. But if you're mean to them, they're going to be really mean and they're going to review your NSF grants. That's also a panel of your peers. So it's, yeah. So these people are able to just bring a whole new level of vitriol. And uh, yeah, 
Yeah. So it's just, I completely avoid the internet. I use it for work and I use it to like occasionally buy things, but uh, I don't spend time on the internet for pleasure, except on Instagram where I do spend about 30 minutes a day watching like videos of overweight raccoons and like drunk people hurting themselves. And that's, that's my serotonin booster, like that and the kickboxing, as you mentioned. And just to answer that part of the question, kickboxing is a very recent thing. I only started it like nine nine months ago, nine and a half months ago. Before that, like before I got into paleo, I did Kung Fu as a, in high school. I was really into Kung Fu. I loved it. And then I, um, I stopped once I went to college, never did any Kung Fu in China. That's one of my deep regrets that I didn't just become a Kung Fu master while I was there. And then just recently, just getting old, like I turned 40 a couple weeks ago or a month ago, shoot. So yeah, anyways, when you get old, things start to hurt and things start to fall apart. And so you have to like, you have to start working out, not just because you want to be fit, but because if you don't, things will rapidly deteriorate. But yeah, I started kickboxing and I loved it. And it is extremely therapeutic. I deal with a lot of BS in work. So I love just getting that all out on the bag. I actually got boxer knuckle. I don't know if you can tell, but this guy's oh, yeah. all messed up. But yeah, it's gross. Eh. And yeah, and I love it. And it's also a serotonin booster. And I think with the extreme pressures of being the dinosaur curator at a major museum, like the Field Museum, it's like a lifesaver for me. So I'd definitely lose my mind if I didn't have my kickboxing. Or I'd just be a really angry person. And I'd probably get in a fight with somebody on the street and get killed because it's Chicago. So like, I wouldn't lose my mind, but definitely that would happen. Yeah. So that's, and that's, I feel like we've made it over the continental divide under the leeward slope of this, which is that, oh my God, the thing that always did it for me with paleontology, it turned out wasn't even, if I could go back in time and like stress this point to my younger self, I would. Like the thing I loved most about it, the thing that I clung to in the rest of the year when I was not in the field, when I was in high school, you know, and this crap, like, was just being outside in a remote location. And like, I look back like that, the happiest moments of my life were when I was like in the Badlands somewhere. And the most miserable moments of my life were when I was sitting in front of a computer for 14 hours a day. And so, well, then you, yeah, that's what a paleontologist mostly does. You, if you, if you're like the paleontologist at a national monument or park or something, then you're out a lot. But most, if you're a professor or a curator, like it's mostly hunched in front of a computer. But there's all different types of paleontologists. There's paleontologists who are out in the field all the time. They love it. They're so good at it, but they don't publish very much. And then, and then on the other extreme. There are paleontologists who do zero field work and maybe they just doing a lot of lab work, but they're always indoors. And I'm definitely like, if I was going to say, what is my strength in paleontology? It's like taking data and connecting the points and making, extracting a story from this information. And so I'm like a publishing machine. I love to write papers and, and I do a lot of that, but I, and I, so I only spend four weeks in the field every year. And I, yeah, I enjoy it much more when I'm tagging along as a part of somebody else's team. Being in charge sucks. So you <laughs> say you liked being out there, but I'd like to see you leading a team and see if you still like it. Because for example, I was out in Hell Creek for two weeks working this really amazing microsite where we found so many new species, a lot of cool stuff, like really rich microsite. And as we were finishing taking down camp and we're about to go 
into towns, little town Ikalaka for the dinosaur shindig before we leave and go back to Chicago. And I look around and I'm like, this place is beautiful, but I did not appreciate it until I was saying goodbye to it because I was too busy worrying about all the details and literally working three times as hard as anyone on my team. Because at a certain point, it is easier to do the work yourself than it is to constantly be nagging people. It is not enjoyable being once, but yeah, basically once you reach curator status, it's not, it's like, it's all the joy is gone. You're just working all the time and just pressure and stress and eh, sorry. So you do I'm actually sound quite depressed. a bit like Roy Chapman Andrews. <laughs> Pardon? That was the Roy Chapman Andrews thing too, wasn't it? That started out sweeping the floors at AMNH and then ended up the curator yeah, was and was like, God damn it. How did I end up in this? Yeah. Yeah, okay, so <laughs> so let's talk science now. Like, we made it an hour into more this. depressed now around I myself. Like, I just slit my wrists on your podcast. Like, <laughs> no, please don't. Please don't. A little exaggerating. Now that I have a sense for you as a person, thank you. Okay, one of this is for the record. This is how all the paleontology conversations go on this show. It's just more like so I'm not special. <laughs> Oh, you're very special because you I'm get kidding. to be the one to tell me about this thing, which, first of all, you said you wanted to talk about working in China and how awesome it is. And I just I wanted to make a note that in your book, I really appreciated you taking a more global perspective on the history of geology. It's important. And how you talked about Chinese philosopher Shen Kuo being the first to use fossil evidence to understand that climates changed over time, which I felt terrible not knowing until the age of 39. Yeah. So it actually, I recently also learned that Native Americans also looked at fossils and recognized that they could, that climates change. So that's a really cool bit I would have liked to stick in there. I also, when I wrote the book, there was a lot more in there that the editor was like, all right, we got to cut this down. This is way too much text for every page. So also Leonardo da Vinci studied fossils and also recognized that they indicated climate change. So when we think about like Darwin, it's no, this is just a single, this is the most recent chain of discovery in Europe. in So, and that is not, so it's not that this is when we discovered evolution. It's like lots of people have known about evolution, but this, but then we like burn the library of Alexandria or whatever. We've been like destroying knowledge and like going through period dark ages. So yeah. And people forget about past knowledge, but also just fun fact. So I happened to be for whatever reason on the Wikipedia page for Shen Kuo. And I saw that exact picture in there. And I realized that, cause I'm not the illustrator, but that is not Shen Kuo. That is Shen Kuo, one of Shen Kuo's ministers. And so I did write the editors and I was like, if you're going to sell this book in China, please fix that. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Funny. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's this, this. Here's another choose your own adventure. I do for sure want to ask you about this in particular. Because the fact that we have not one origin of dinosaur flight, but numerous origins of dinosaur flight is something that was completely occluded to anyone's understanding at the time that I think most people listening to this show grew up and cared about this stuff. Um, We just, there was no evidence then. Like all the evidence for multiple origins of flight is comes is recent and really like the most important piece of information that really led us to this hypothesis 
because it's still just a hypothesis. Right now, it's a big debate: single origin or multiple origins, or like a couple origins and or versus many origins. Because I'll get into it. But、uh, but yeah, really, the way we realized it was really with in 2015 with the discovery of a dinosaur called E. Chi, which in Chinese means strange wing. It's a Scansoriopter rigid.、Uh, when I describe it to people, yes, Scansoriopter rigidae. I didn't come up with that name, but it's my favorite group of dinosaurs. Those responsible have been fast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>、uh, so Scansoriopter rigidae, and they. So let me back up. This is a new group of dinosaurs that was only discovered in 2002, and when the first specimens were found. They were juvenile specimens, so they weren't that they were pretty well preserved because it's this jehol deposits. It's a Lagerstatin, so you have complete articulated specimens. But they were sub they were immature. Let's just they were immature. As Chris Griffin says, we need to move away from juvenile sub adult and just be like mature versus immature. So they're immature, and so that means maybe they don't preserve like the full adult morphology, but they preserved. Something that had never before been seen in a dinosaur. Dinosaurs closely related to birds have three fingers, and in this group of dinosaurs, one the out the outer finger, so the third finger, is hyper elongate. It's much longer than the other fingers. Fingers, and so yeah, a new feature. Clearly, this new group of dinosaurs. And when you see something new that you've never before seen in a fossil. Even if you have no clue what it is or what it's for, you have to at least put forth a hypothesis. So the hypothesis put forth by these authors,、uh, Zhang Fucheng et al., is that this is this weird hand morphology is a feeding adaptation that they're using this long finger to stick it into holes in wood and probe for insects the way an II does. And so if you look at an II's hand, it's actually not really a good analog because in an II. It has five fingers, and all the fingers are hyper elongate. Not just one, but the third finger is like really skinny. It's gross. Look at it; it's really gross. It's got this one really thin finger that it like sticks into the holes and like probes for grubs. I、right. remember when this so, was like, published. Yeah, I had forgotten、yeah. this whole backstory on the animal. Anyway, go on. So yeah, this was Epidendrosaurus. That was the first Scansoriopterygid to be described, which was also described the same time as Scansoriopteryx. But then they were realized that they were the same taxon. But when Scans Epidendros and Epidendrosaurus was described, they didn't erect a, a family name. But for Scansoriopteryx, they did. Even so, Scansoriopteryx is not valid. Scansoriopterygidae is. So that's why it's the Scansoriopterygids. Anyways, fast forward thirteen years later. So、uh, you know, Jingmei is now a paleontologist. I must have gotten into paleontology in 2001. So I was just getting interested. All these things, cool things coming out of China, were really fascinating to me. Part of what hooked me. So now, 2015, I'm part of this team that's going to the Chenyu Museum, the Guinness Book of World Records, biggest dinosaur museum in the world, coolest place, so cool, and we go there to study this new Scansoriopterygid. And the project is being led by the king of dinosaurs, Xu Xing, amazing guy. And so we're all looking at this new Scansoriopterygid, which is the most mature Scansoriopterygid that's been found so far, and also the most complete. And you're looking at the hand. And you see this super long finger. Yup, it's a Scansoriopterygid. And then we saw this other huge bone, really long, like as long as the ulna, and it's sticking out of the wrist.、Um, and so this is a bone that has never before been seen in any dinosaur before. And so we're looking at it, and we were all 
stumped because it's really hard to imagine things outside what you already know. So we were like, is somehow the ulna ripped in half? Like, so that this is not an extra bone. It's like somehow, because we have the ulna, we know it's not the ulna. So is it like, but somehow they're like, we were trying to come up with all sorts of like, taphonomic ways to explain why there's an extra bone there instead of just recognizing that yes this is an extra bone like a new bone and we were really confused by this and and we left our visit to the at the Tianyu Museum still pretty clueless and uh, and then we go back to Beijing to the IVPP and my really good friend Corwin Sullivan who was also at the time was a, a professor at the IVPP now he's a professor at the University of Alberta and so he's writing this book called From Fish to Humans which is actually it's about the fossil record in China and it's an award-winning book so I'm just going to plug it put it out there actually I haven't read it but he gave me a copy I hope he doesn't listen to this anyways but it's one awards and it's really good I'm sure because <laughs> Corwin's awesome anyway so he's doing research for this book because like me he works on dinosaurs so he's got to look at or archosaurus actually but he's got to look more broadly this is from fish to humans right so he's reading about flying squirrels and he sees this that flying squirrels have this bone that sticks out of the wrist that supports the flap of skin it's called a patagia uh, that flying squirrels use for their gliding form of flight right and so this this is the light bulb over his head moment and, uh, you know, Xu Sheng goes back to the Tianyu Museum and even finds that the soft tissue of the wing membrane is fossilized as this kind of like schmear around the, the forelimb. And so we realize, and what I think is so cool is like with, with one new discovery, you go from being like scansoriopterygids or like little dinosaur eye eyes with weird hands for feeding to no, scansoriopterygids are like little flying squirrel dinosaurs and their wing is so different from that of other flying dinosaurs that flight has probably evolved in dinosaurs more than once. One fossil changes so much about what we know or what we think we know anyways, because the only true knowledge is knowing nothing. But uh, yeah, and to me, that's so exciting and so fun. And that's why also when people start arguing about this or that in paleontology, I'm like, hey, guys, What's the point in getting all worked up about this? Let's just wait for new discoveries or new data based on existing fossils to shed light on these controversies. There's no point in getting too attached to any existing hypothesis that is controversial, because if it's controversial, it means we do not have enough data to adequately address it unequivocally. So let's wait for more information. And, uh, and that's the lesson of Ichi that all scientists should learn. So it was really a very recent discovery that made people realize that flight evolved more than once. But if you think about it, like, so before the discovery of Ichi, like we knew Microraptor was a flying dromaeosaurid. And, you know, Ichi flies with a membranous wing, like a flying squirrel. Birds fly with wings only on their arms. Microraptor flies with wings on its arms and its legs. But we still, at the time, when Microraptor was described in 2003, people thought that there was a single origin of dinosaurian flight that led to both Microraptor and birds. Because in, I forget what year it was, like 1905 or something, this guy named Bibi was just pontificating about how flight may have evolved in birds. And he hypothesized that flight evolved through a four-winged gliding phase. And he drew this animal, it's all made up, but he drew this animal that he called Proavis. And it was, and you, know, you can find the illustrations of it. It's this little thing with wings on its arms and wings on its legs. So people discovered, when Microraptor was described by Xu Xing, people were like, wow, he was right. And so this was thought that like flight in birds first went through a four-wing gliding phase and then eventually evolves to power flight with a single set of wings. But a single origin produces both these 
modes of flight, right? But now, once you realize that flight may have evolved more than once with the discovery of scansoriopterygids being volant, and then you look at the phylogenetic position of Microraptor, it seems that Microraptor may also be an independent origin of flight. So that we know that dinosaurs evolved wing-like structures on their forelimbs for some other purpose, and that these structures were exacted for flight. So it's like a fancy evolutionary term for saying that evolution hijacks a structure that evolves for some other purpose and then adapts it for a new purpose. This is actually an idea that Darwin put forth that he called pre-adaptation, but people didn't like that term, and so they changed the name of the term. But still, I like to point out that Darwin actually thought of that first, which is pretty cool. Yeah, before so, Golden Gerba, that, that- – yeah. Acceptation is one of my favorite ideas in the entire domain. But if you think about it, everything is an exaptation, right? Exactly. Like pretty much everything is like, yeah, like absolutely. <laughs> but, uh, is, okay, I'm glad that I have a. I'm, I'm glad I have a backup. Like I've got cavalry here because this is the thing that I get it. I argue with people about this. I'm like, come on, th- does this even need to be a separate word? Does it even? If something goes extinct and never becomes something else then it's not exaptation. And uh, yeah, and I guess exaptation really specifically refers to a major change in the function of something. And from lobe fins to arms, legs, like that is exaptation. But if you're like, if, yeah, I mean, like tail feathers that are for flight that can t- get exacted for display. But I guess I think most major, like every major transfer transformation is ex- exaptation, but not all evolutionary change is exaptation. So you're right. Yeah. If you're just like evolving to be like a different color and sing a different song, it's not really acceptation, but yeah. So yeah. So then Microraptor might be a different, another independent origin of flight. And then there's another taxon, another dromaeosaurid called Rahonavis. So you notice the Avis in the name. It was described in 1998. It's from Madagascar and it was thought to be a bird. But then they real and they thought it was a long-tailed bird that survived into the end Cretaceous. But then people were like, no, this is a dromaeosaurid. But because it's, you know, it's so bird-like that it was identified as being a bird, and this suggests that it actually may be another flying dromaeosaurid. So this suggests at least four independent origins of flight in dinosaurs. And what's interesting is that at least when we can actually see the wing structure, like in birds. Microraptor and Scansoriopterygids, but we don't have any soft tissues for Rahonavis, so we don't know what's going on there. But when you can see the soft tissues, we actually see the wing is different every time, which makes sense. Every time something evolves in parallel to something else, it never is going to evolve exactly the same way because there are just, there's different genetic material, different evolutionary pressures based on the, the geo, te- geographic temporal position of this organism that is then going to evolve something else. Yeah, that's really interesting. But, but there is a big but here. And uh, I just want everybody to keep your eyes peeled for a study that uh, hopefully, knock on wood, is going to be coming out in PNAS, uh, hopefully by the end of the year. We've just resubmitted it for our second review. And it's a project that I'm doing with my postdoc, Yosef Kiet. He's an ornithologist. And I have to say that I think some of the most interesting things that we can discover are when you intersect neontology with paleontology. Because let's face it, a lot of paleontologists aren't really looking at fossils as if they are actually once they're not looking at them as if they were alive and trying to really think about them as a whole organism with all the moving parts like they, it's hard for paleontologists to do that because 
I don't know. I've just noticed this as a trend. Again, just a sh- to, to anyone who wants to be a paleontologist, be a biologist first and then do paleontology. It'll make you a better paleontologist. That was so I'm saying that. That was Bacher's mantra. Bob Bacher was like, yeah. back in the in 91, he was like, go to the zoo, take a video camera, record the, the animals walking, go home, take acetate film, draw them, like draw, like trace the movements of their gates so that you can understand how living animals move so that when you're pulling stuff out of the ground, you can think about how like things with limbs, limb bones of these relative proportions and so on are going to be moving. It was all of his stuff. He was a Johns Hopkins anatomy professor for a while there. Yeah, oh, yeah. I think he, he's absolutely right about, I think it's important for paleontologists to really observe animals, to see what animals can do. Because it's one of these, we're always trying to bin things, right? This guy swims and this guy climbs and it's like, we're humans and we're technically cursorial animals, but we can swim and we can climb. And we can, so it's like these bins that we put things in to simplify things so that we can study them. We need to remember they're artificial bins and, and that animals are far more complex. But also Bob Bacher described T-Rex as a 20,000 pound roadrunner from hell. He, I don't know. <laughs> He's a bit melodramatic. Melodramatic. Sells books. Sells, like, it sells. <laughs> also, I, just a note in defense of the rampant speculation of prehistoric planet. I loved the swimming Tyrannosaurus. I loved it. But okay, for all people listening to the pod- podcast, Jean May just rolled her eyes. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, the animal. <laughs> yeah, and yes, like most organisms, you can dump them in water and they will not immediately drown. Pretty much everything can swim, but is but it's not something that the animal is going to be doing all the time. And T Rex certainly was probably a really bad swimmer i don't mean like really bad anyways I, anyways so. you may get a because you actually do have work on spinosaurus and swimming and but yeah I wanna... yeah and this is an animal that is adapted for swimming and there's like enormous amounts of skeletal modifications of spinosaurus compared to other theropods that strongly support this hypothesis and but yeah like as a dinosaur curator at a big museum you're always like you have to do things like who would win in a fight T-Rex versus Spinosaurus. <laughs> I always say it depends where they're fighting. If they're fighting in the water, maybe Spinosaurus would have the upper hand. If they're fighting on land, definitely T-Rex. But you guys got to remember they did not exist together. But it's fun. This I did this event with this Rex Tooth. They make these really cool graphic novels about dinosaurs and other prehistoric animals. Definitely shout out to Rex Tooth. And so they, they were, we were, I was doing this event with the artist, Ted Recklin. And so he created, because we were like gonna, supposed to like answer questions related to this, he made this animation that it was like, it, was, it started off, it said comic book science. And then this like portal opens up and allows like a T-Rex to meet a spider. And I was like, thank you for doing that, for making it very clear that they like should not meet each other, but oh, in yeah. a funny way. Yeah. yeah. But anyways, let me just wrap up about my flying dinosaurs. No spoilers, but I'm going to say, keep your eyes peeled for this paper. But basically what we did is we, we made a huge investigation of flight feathers and their structure in living birds, and then applied this data set to like a data set of fossils where you could count their feathers and you can measure the asymmetry and that kind of thing. And yeah, basically the punchline is that data actually ended up supporting a single origin. And when I was kind of like, ooh, because I really love the multiple origins of dinosaurian flight hypothesis. I really loved it. But this data, it suggests otherwise. And But in this, we're, we don't take a hard stance. We're not like single origin. We're just like this data adds 
like complicates the story. And this data needs to be taken in account for anybody attempting to understand the early evolution of flight in dinosaurs. So it's definitely not a, it's not like, I'm just saying that it's not sure, it's not certain how many times flight evolved in dinosaurs. And the last thing I'll say on this topic is that if flight evolved more than once, statistically speaking, it is likely that with the exception of birds, all other flying dinosaurs only had gliding flight. Because if you look at mammals, like, I mean, gliding, first of all, power flight is extremely difficult to evolve. And if you look at mammals, flight has evolved many times, like colugos or sugar gliders and flying squirrels and bats, but only bats have powered flight. And then bats are also an extremely successful group of mammals, Se- second most diverse group of mammals after rodents, right? So definitely powered flight in parts a lot of advent advantages like because birds are also extremely diverse but i think just based on the statistical comparison like it's likely that for example microraptor was gliding for sure scansoriraptor ridges were gliding based on their very rudimentary wing structure but yeah anyways it's a very new area of research again this is all stuff we've just started arguing about in the last like less than 20 years i'm not taking sides in any way. I'm just excited to see what the new fossils we find are going to tell us. Just enjoying the ride. Right on. Just because there's one loop that we did open at the beginning of this episode that we haven't addressed. And it was that piece about soft tissues and what an insanely different landscape we have today compared to 20 years ago in terms of the availability of fossils with soft tissue preservation. If you have anything to say on that, and then yeah, I'm knowing that you have to Of course I do. <laughs> you <know>. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, yeah. I'll try my best to keep it breathe and then I'll sprint extra fast to the bathroom. First of all, I do want to just first point out that the study of Mesozoic birds begins with a isolated feather, which is soft tissue. And Archaeopteryx would never have been recognized as being a bird if it wasn't for its preserved soft tissues. So soft tissues are not new to paleontology, but we're really only now starting to give them the attention that they deserve. And also we only now really have the toolkit in order to really investigate these things and really extract a lot of information. And we're even now, even though I said what I just said, we are still only scraping the surface of what these soft tissue impressions can tell us. But if you look at Archaeopteryx, like I said, it would not have been identified as a bird if it wasn't for its wings. So what does that mean? It means that the soft tissue modifications in the lineage of birds preceded skeletal modifications. So this means when we're looking at a fossil and we only have its skeleton, we are probably underestimating where it's at in terms of its like evolution. We have the end game, right? We have living squirrels or whatever and we're looking at a fossil squirrel like i'm just saying that the soft tissues are probably closer to the derived living form than the skeleton like the skeleton lags behind and it makes sense because the skeleton like you know is the support for the entire rest of the body so it cannot change as quickly as soft tissues which are more labile and this is something that we see repeatedly when we see soft tissues preserved in fossils and so the most of the time where we get these things are deposits that are called lagerstätten which is german meaning storage place so it's just a geologic unit that has is really rich in fossils and these fossils are usually are have to be exceptional for it to be a lagerstätten and normally this means the fossils are complete and articulated, meaning like hip bone connected to the leg bone. But sometimes this exceptional preservation extends beyond the 
skeleton to also include some of the soft tissues. And most commonly, at least in, so I work in these lower Cretaceous deposits that have produced the early Cretaceous jet hole biota. There's everything from invertebrates and insects and things to lots of plants to amphibians, all the way up to some of the earliest crowned mammals, it seems. It's this really rich deposit and the soft tissues are preserved in everything. And they are still rare. They're not, they're preserved in every group, but they're not preserved in every fossil. But the most common soft tissue you get is, is feathers. And this is mostly because the feathers are not actually themselves preserved, but what is preserved are these decay resistant mono organelles that contain pigment called melanosomes that are embedded in the keratin matrix of a feather. So if you have a white feather, you will see nothing. But if you have a feather with melanosomes, you'll have the melanosomes basically preserving what the feather would look like, but the keratin matrix of the feather is gone for the most part. Yeah. And so that's the most common thing we get. And and because we have the melanosomes, this has led to us to beginning to be able to investigate fossil color, like what color these things were. And it's a very small part of the picture because it doesn't capture structural color. So for example, the melanosomes of a blue jay would tell you it was black, but of course it's blue. This also needs to be taken with a grain of salt. But yeah, we also had fossilized ovarian follicles, lung tissue. And this is not just even unique to the uh, Jehol deposits. There's also this wonderful Lagerstatte in uh, Spain that's about the same age as the Jehol Lagerstatten. It's called the it's Las Hoyas. And they have, when I was describing this bird with fossil lungs, I was like, first ever fossil lungs. And then the reviewer, who I'm pretty sure was Mark Norell, was like, oh yeah, there's this fossil mammal from Las Hoyas that preserves lungs and its liver and the soft tissues of its ears. Oh my goodness, it's amazing. Yeah, there's, there's wonderful things out there. And again, like I said, just scratching the surface. And I really look forward to what the next generation of paleontologists who are going to come better equipped in biology, in chemistry, and the in these other fields that they're then going to apply their knowledge and their methodologies to fossils to better to uncover amazing things. For example, Yasmina Veeman, who is a chemist and she's a paleontologist and what she can figure out using Raman spectroscopy and chemistry from fossils just blows everybody's minds. Solving like ending one major debate. Yes, dinosaurs were warm blooded for sure. That debate is closed. And that's amazing. Yeah. Like Steve said, we're in the golden age of paleontology, but I don't think it's because we're digging everything up because still the most amazing things do not come from cities where we're digging for buildings and stuff. I think it's really coming from technological advances and advances in in the way paleontologists think from moving away from just using fossils to be like, these rocks have forams in them that are usually this age. So these rocks are this age. That's like what paleontology used to be. And of course, now there's been a, a major change and we're just beginning to see how paleontology is going to change in the future with new ideas and new methods and yeah it's an exciting time to be a paleontologist even if other paleontologists are mean to me (laughs) i would be surprised if they were listening to this so i think you're in front of a sympathetic (laughs) audience anyway it's such a pleasure thank you so much Hey, and, yeah, it was really fun chatting with you. And in a couple of years, invite me back and I'll have new things to tell you. Oh, yeah. In a couple of years, I'll be like, how do I get my kids onto a Chinese dinosaur quarry? That'll be the... You, don't, you do not know. Okay, last thing I'll say, you don't want that. And actually, I never... I, the Liaoning deposits, when I first showed up for my postdoc at the IVPP, they're like, yeah, you just missed our summer dig. We just came back. But next summer, you can go and we're out there for... 30 to 40 days. And we're in the quarry splitting slabs for 10 hours a day. And yep, you're going to come. And I was like, (gasps) 
that sounds horrible. And then luckily that next summer, the IVPP wasn't able to go back because Liaoning changed its laws so that fossils from Liaoning could not leave Liaoning. And I was like, whoo, yeah, dodge <laughs> that bullet. Because that to me sounded really awful. But anyways, <laughs> if you kids want to do it, then I'll do my best to help them get in one of those quarries. There are a thousand closer quarries. So yeah, come with me to Green River. All right. It was very Thank nice you meeting you and nice chatting with you and have an awesome weekend. You too. Right. Take care. Cheers. Bye. Thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed this conversation, please subscribe to Future Fossils wherever you listen to podcasts. The next episode of the show is a lively trialogue with Gregory Landway of the Regen Network and Regen Foundation and speaker John Ash about regenerative economies. It was a truly profound and inspiring riff on how to make land stewardship economically competitive against extractive capitalism. Before I sign you out, I wanna share something really special with you. These are the first two tracks from my new album, The Age of Reunion, Bardo and Indecision. You can find the music videos on YouTube now or on Instagram and pre-order the entire 44-minute album on Bandcamp.
from your exquisite brain Give me a second All your life a place And in a If you're not willing to sacrifice your life for paleontology, don't do it.